Welcome to episode three of the African Photography Safaris podcast with me, Khalil Zaib and Alan Hewitt. In case this is the first episode you've come across, we're wildlife photographers and filmmakers, and we take photographers on safari in Africa. On this podcast, we chat about what it's like to be on a photo safari and run through useful things to know, interesting topics and a few of our favourite moments. This episode and the previous two are available on the podcast section of our website at africanphotographysafaris.com, as well as all the usual podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible and Google. So famous. Also up on the website are any photos or videos that relate to what we're talking about on the podcast and any other links like books that we review. Alan, what do we have today? Thanks, Khalil. Um, today, we're going to tackle one of the big photography safari questions. It's the equipment question. What do I need to take on a photographic safari? Some of it's common sense and obvious, but not all of it. And I think it will be useful for the uninitiated as well as those who are more experienced. We've also got some questions from podcast listener Natalie, quite a lot actually. So we'll take a couple of them here and save some for future episodes. My uh, memorable moment involves a fantastic cheetah called Kasaru and her gorgeous cubs. And Alan's going to look at a book called Pathfinder by Ionesca Pulella. Hope I've pronounced that right. Uh, so Alan, has anything caught your eye in the world of safari news since the last episode? Absolutely, yes. An article in the UK Times newspaper back in March, which was titled Rise of the Ferrari Safari Endangering Africa's Wildlife. Uh, it's an article that I can concur with, yet it sort of frustrates me in roughly equal measures. In a nutshell, the article highlights the post-COVID pandemic increase in visitors to the Maasai Mara, and with that, as we know, comes an increase in unethical behaviour. It cites concerns over aggressive tourism, unethical guides who put their clients' photographs before the welfare of the subjects. And, you know, sadly, we've witnessed some of this sort of thing in the main national reserve in Kenya's Maasai Mara. And this links directly with what we were discussing in our first episode about the reasons we prefer to take our guests to the conservancies rather than the national reserve. While I agree with the spirit of the article, it focuses on the ethics issues of the National Reserve, but it totally ignores the very good practice and ethical approach of guiding, the limited vehicle numbers and the sustainability of the conservancies. It gives an unbalanced picture and it's an opportunity lost. It also talks about Instagram moments, mobile phone photography, yet it uses a photograph of photographers using long telephoto lenses. And generally speaking, you know, we know the latter are least likely to act unethically. And it's more likely that a camera phone wielding guest obsessing about a selfie with a line in the background is more likely to be the, the troublesome issue. The article is just... Just another example of lazy journalism, I think, by ignoring the good and actually just mis-illustrating the problem. I will put a link to the article on the website, but unfortunately it is behind a paywall, so a subscription may be needed. So yeah, frustration vented. So let's talk about Kasaru, the, uh, the wonderful cheetah, who it's fair to say has provided us with not just one, but quite a few memorable moments. Yeah, she's a really special cat, a cheetah to be exact. We've seen cheetahs every time we've been to Kenya, but we've always seen them either on their own or as a coalition of adults. In 2019, that all changed. We were told by the guides that a cheetah was near the camp with cubs, the holy grail. Not only some cubs, Kisaru had six of them, and they were all small bundles of adorableness. The first time we saw them, all our hearts melted. Six cheetah cubs, I mean, oh. They played around and acted silly and even climbed trees. Uh, it never occurred to me that cheetahs could climb trees, but they do when they're young. 
When Kasaru needed them close, they'd all pile up onto a termite mound so she could survey threats from all angles. There's a picture of them all doing this on the podcast section of the website. If you just look up episode three, I've also put a bonus pic of one of the cubs in a tree. Very cute. I think the reason we felt that Kasaru was special was that the way she provided for the cubs over successive years, she'd regularly hunt more than once a day and she'd start to stalk a young Thompson's gazelle and the cubs would instinctively fall back and wait under a tree. She'd then single out a prey and she was like a bullet off astonishing speed and ruthless, tripping the gazelle mid-run and killing it to bring back for dinner. Seeing a cheetah at full pelt on the savannah is a life-affirming experience. Cheetah hunts on average only are successful about half the time or even less, but Kasara was just like a machine regularly providing for the family. In 2020, we were really looking forward to catching up with the cheetahs in the Maasai Mara again. Alan, you popped back there in early 2020, just before COVID hit, uh, and before we could return in August, you saw Kasara again, didn't you? Yeah, and then she had four of the uh, cubs, which were pretty much sub-adult by then. I think at some point between two of them had gone missing. Um, we don't know what happened. I've read stats on cheetah cub mortality being around 80 to 90%. So to bring up four cubs um, to, to sort of adulthood, you know, and the hunting success that she had, you know, absolutely fantastic mother. I also sort of consider the statistic that um, Niels gave us, um, Niels, is a researcher for the Mara Predator Conservation Programme, and he told us that in the protected areas of the Maasai Mara, there was at one point there was only 32 cheetahs in those areas. So, you know, the addition of another four cubs is, is quite significant, really. Yeah, 100% rates on six cubs would be almost impossible, so four is a really good outcome. Uh, in 2022, we finally returned to the Mara after all the lockdowns and travel restrictions. And it, can you imagine our delight when we saw Kasaru again uh, that year with two older cubs this time? What a treat. She's such a very successful cheetah. And so hopefully next time we're back in the Mara, we'll see her with yet a new family. Yeah, it was, it was great to see her, wasn't it? We uh, we, we spent some time, um, just I think it was quite close to the end on Kishu and our Choro border. And one of the I remember one of the, the cubs went racing after Jackal. Do you remember yeah. full pelt? It was it was it was pretty good. It was great <laughs> it was... watching them. They, I think they'd killed a, a young gazelle again, and there was a, yeah. a tawny eagle come down to, to feed on it as well. The jackals were there, and there was a sort of little bit of conflict going on between the young cheetahs, the tawny eagle, and the uh, jackals as well. So it was a great little sort of moment to to witness and to photograph. Yeah, yeah, really good value. So on to something that a lot of people ask about. What do we take on a photographic safari? Where do I start? Uh, probably at the most obvious, camera or two cameras. For most, an African photography safari is likely to be a one-off sort of bucket list experience. As a result, we recommend taking two camera bodies, mainly as a backup in case something goes wrong with one of them. The last thing you want to be doing is being out in the savannah or in the bushveld of South Africa, wherever, you know, amongst the wildlife and your camera develops a fault. Um, these things just can't be fixed in the field, you know, most of the time. Most of us use interchangeable lens cameras too, so it's often useful to have different lenses attached to different cameras to be able to quickly swap between the two, depending on the circumstances we find ourselves in. And the dusty savannah is absolutely far from the ideal place to be swapping lenses. Now, on the subject of lenses, for me, versatility is key. So I'm an advocate of using zoom lenses. 
We photographed such a huge range of species at such different distances with so many compositional opportunities. You know, I often find prime lenses, those or lenses with fixed focal lengths, to be quite limiting. You know, it's not the 1970s anymore. Modern telephoto zooms are very, very good quality. And my favourite lens is a 100 to 400 millimetre type of range. But if smaller birds are your goal, then something like 150 to 600 mil may be more beneficial. I also pack a 50 to 140 f2.8 lens and thirdly a sort of wide-angle mid-range zoom something around the sort of 18 to 80 millimeter range as well. Yeah it's funny you should say that about the zoom lenses I totally agree about the versatility of zooms uh, but I kind of had mixed feelings that's, that's the only problem with you know all things being equal I would prefer the look of a prime lens you know what I mean um, there's something yeah, incredibly beautiful yeah. about you know a shot with a 400 mil f2.8 lens if you can afford it and carry it uh, i've hired one of these on safari before and it's a bit of a pain not being able to zoom in and out but the shots are stunning even sticking a two times teleconverter on it for birds for an incredibly useful 800 millimeter still results in amazing images at f5.6 you know it does mean you have to have another camera body as alan said with a shorter lens on so you can quickly swap and that's a really useful piece of advice in practice i would normally take like a 200 to 600 zoom yeah, one day we need, what we really need is a, somebody to invent a, a 50 to 600 f2.8 zoom lens, you know. Yeah, well, the professional um, videographers, when you see on the big wildlife documentaries, they're using like a massive Canon 50 to 1000 zoom lens. But uh, you, yeah, it's the cost of a house, basically. <laughs> it's the cost of a house and it's transporting it as well. Yeah, yeah. I think m most of these people just hire them in. Yeah, Khalil has a habit of bringing lenses you can see from space on Safari. <laughs> <laughs> now, I also pack some lens bags and a lens cover. The lens bags are great for when we're moving around the vehicle to keep excess dust off the cameras. Um, I'll put a link to this sort of thing on the podcast page of the website. And I also have a rain cover too. You know, we had some mega storms out there. And these lens bags and covers act as useful extra padding in the camera bags too. So on the subject of camera bags, uh, hmm. Yeah, this right here is one of the thorniest issues when traveling with camera gear, and it's quite difficult to get right, so we thought we'd talk in a bit of detail about it. Uh, we're carrying a lot of expensive gear around with us, and we want that gear to arrive safe and undamaged. For most of us, a trip to Africa means air travel, so bag sizes and weight limits are key factors to think about. I think about packing for air travel by thinking in two categories. First category is stuff that's absolutely critical to the trip, which you can't do without. Category two is everything else. And the everything else category are things that I, I do want to bring, but it wouldn't cause a major problem if they went to Ouagadougou instead of Nairobi. So that means everything critical goes in your hand luggage and all the other stuff in the hold bag. Uh, it's worth having a good think about this. It's not just, you know, essential cameras, lenses, batteries, chargers, SD cards, cables, card readers, and so on. But it's also things like spare clothes, medicines, a wash bag. What can't you do without for a week? The way to think about it is to imagine the airline loses your hold bag. Can you manage? We had one poor chap on a trip a few years ago where Air France lost his bag on the way out and they helpfully found it just as he was returning for his flight home. Yes, also have to add the vast amount that added to my mobile phone bill on that <laughs> particular trip as we tried to ring several people in Nairobi to see if it had actually turned up. I think my, it was the largest ever mobile phone bill I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare for him, poor thing. Uh, luckily, he had all his camera gear and his hand luggage, uh, so can't underline that enough. Uh, but he still had to borrow clothes from his roommate, so that's a cautionary tale. 
Of course, the problem with stuffing your hand luggage to the gills is that it often weighs a lot and airlines have a weight and size limit, which you must check beforehand. It's always a dance to fit as much into your bag as possible without going over, and Alan and I often cram all sorts of stuff in our coats at the check-in desk, just in case the cabin bag's weighed. We chuck it all back in the bag once we're through. I've had cameras, lenses, and all sorts of random gubbins in my coat pockets. We've even had people wearing fishing vests with a thousand pockets full of camera gear at the check-in. If you can, though, try to bring less than me. <laughs> There's no guarantee the airline staff won't ask you for your coat. I've only ever had my hand luggage weighed in once in Uganda in all the years I've travelled to Africa, but we've had clients have their bags regularly weighed from London airports, so I guess it depends where you're going from. That Uganda one was funny because I'd crammed the bag so full that it looked pregnant. It weighed more than my hold luggage. Luckily, the woman at the check-in desk got me to remove a token t-shirt from it and then let it through anyway. Pretty random. Yeah, it's always been a little bit strange that how some of our guests have had their hand luggage weighed and some haven't, despite yeah. us all travelling on the same um, airline. It, it is really weird how it works. To be honest, I think it just looks... I think I think they take it at face value. I think if they feel as though you can handle that bag and you can lift it up and put it into the overhead lockers, I think that's really what they look for rather than the actual weight of the bag. That's the only conclusion that I've been able to come to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thinking about it falling out on top of somebody if you haven't quite yeah, got it. Yeah, if you, if you can't lift it up, then, you know, who's going to lift it up for you if you can't get it down? Who's, who's going to do that as well? I think that's what they, they look for more than the actual weight of the bag. Yeah. Speaking of oversized luggage, when we run trips in Kenya, we use an internal airline called Safari Link. So these planes are quite small and have a much lower weight limit, like 15 kilos for the hold plus hand luggage. So that's like your entire allowance is 15 kilos. Uh, don't worry if you're coming with us, though, because when we book your flights from Nairobi, we pay extra for a weight allowance so that it matches your international flights uh, hold plus hand luggage. I'll tell you another thing that's worth checking. Not all insurance policies are equal. So when you buy travel insurance, check to see whether it covers all your gear. Some policies won't cover your camera gear if it's in the hold, for example. Once you're on Safari, you may well be using your camera bag in the vehicle, so it needs to be something portable, easily accessible, and preferably well padded for the off-road bumps and jiggles. I personally tend to take a separate bag for this, but that's just because I bring the kitchen sink, plunger, drainage board. Alan will attest to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, half of it never gets used. Yeah, half of it doesn't even get used. No, but you know, just in case, what happens if I didn't have that, you know, well... I think I'm much more efficient. I have to admit, you are, but I tend to think uh what if and i just need that just in case yeah anyway you know i can see that <laughs> definitely concede that point to you uh, <laughs> you can get nicely padded airline safe hand luggage specifically for cameras which keeps everything cosseted and organized uh, some people bring roller cases some backpacks it's really whatever works for you when traveling and then using daily in africa so what's your take alan what else goes in the camera bag well, I'd just like to underline what Khalil said. Everything that is critical to the success of photography on the safari goes in the camera bag as cabin baggage. Absolutely not in the hold. Batteries. Gone are the days of film SLRs when a battery would last weeks, if not months. You know, modern cameras are power hungry and they need to be fed. We go through sometimes an entire battery in a day. Um, maybe, you know, people are 
changing batteries once, twice a day. You only uh, use one battery a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, your airline will probably stipulate that lithium batteries absolutely need to be packed in cabin bags anyway and not in the hold. And they often have limits on how many spare batteries you can bring, but generally for normal cameras, it's not usually a problem, but they need to be in your cabin luggage. And remember, batteries need chargers, and chargers need cables, and cables need plugs. So we're already seeing an increasing use of power banks for charging too. Another thing is memory cards. You know, you probably can't use your camera without them unless you've got some form of internal memory. And you may also need a card reader, and that's going to also necessitate perhaps a connectivity cable as well. And then we've got a laptop or a tablet, hard drives. You may wish to back up your photographs to a computer, possibly a hard drive too. You may also wish to access software such as, you know, uh, Lightroom, Photoshop, Capture One or whatever. And again, we need connectivity, we need cables, plugs. These things need to be charged and connected together. Yeah, Alan and I always bring laptops to review and process our photos and video and also bring external hard drives to make backups. All of these devices need cables and power and without them, they're totally useless. Absolutely. Remember, different cameras may need different batteries and different batteries may need different chargers. That's something to consider when choosing a second camera body. I even carry a few replacement fuses as well, which reminds me, you know, what about extension leads? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Always a good idea to pack one of these in the hold luggage. Sometimes electrical points in the camps can be sparse. So, you know, if you want to charge a couple of camera batteries, a laptop and all sorts of other things, it's good to have a multi-plug extension, preferably one with a surge protector as well. Of course, any electrical adapters for the country must go in your hand luggage as a critical item. Not an issue for us Brits in Kenya, as they use the same uh, UK style of plug. I think Uganda's the same. Uh, but if you're coming from the States or mainland Europe, for example, or you're heading to somewhere like South Africa, you'll definitely need adapters. And what about filters and filter holders? I often take filters, such as a polarizer, even a couple of grads. Um, and I tend to pack these in my camera bag too. I don't consider them to be as critical as other gear, but you know, filters are quite expensive and I want the added security of them being in my camera bag. So it's not just about the critical nature of the item, it's about how much something actually costs. Yeah, yeah, you need to protect it. Yeah, it's always useful to remember that a polarizer, just to pick up on that point about filters, uh, that polarizers can actually tackle high contrast brilliance on water and wet leaves. Um, and a grad is great for landscape shots. You do get a chance to, to do some landscape stuff when you're out in Kenya. A good torch is also essential, uh, ideally one with a red filter for use out in the field and also for moving around the camp and after dusk and in the case of power cuts. I always bring a head torch so I've got two spare hands. That's yeah, really sorry. useful. That, that, that is a really good point actually because um, sometimes when you've been doing a little bit of photography, um, having a beer, doing your sundowners and things like that and we've got cameras sitting mm. on, uh, on seats and then we start moving to get back to camp, you might want to repack your camera bag. So having a sort of head torch and having those two hands free, yeah, absolutely head torch. Great, great point. Yeah, allows you to multitask. A cleaning kit for cameras and lenses, wipes, lens cloths, they're also essential. It can get quite dusty uh, sometimes. Um, we also carry these little rocket blowers by Giotto. Uh, some of the uh, manufacturers, the cheaper ones, make them as well. Um, they're very effective at blasting the dust off lenses when changing them. But airport security don't like them. They look a bit like a hand grenade. Uh, and so that's one for the hold luggage. Crucially, make sure you leave room for personal items such as money, passport, visa, contact lenses, glasses, sunglasses, smartphone, charger, any medication. In our experience, tripods and monopods are best left in the hold luggage because uh, we've seen people have problems with them at airport security and also on boarding. It's a canny big weapon, really, so they're, they're a bit sort of cagey about it. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. On the subject of tripods and monopods, you know, we do have a question to the podcast about that, which um, probably cover in the next episode, I think. But something to consider if you're carrying a tripod or monopod is that you'll also need to pack the connecting plates. Again, you know, it's no use having a tripod head if you can't attach it to your camera. So some of these little Arca Swiss plates and things like that that uh, people use on Manfrotto plates, if it's something that's quite proprietary, um, they can be quite expensive. Uh, so like Phil, as you know, I prefer these to go in my cabin bag too. Actually, that's, that's a good point. As talking about uh, you know tripod heads and plates and things like that, it's always useful, I think, is to have your entire setup assembled just before you put it in the bag, because then you know that the whole thing works, and you can just take it apart and then put it in your bag, and you know that system is going to work in Africa. Tools too, you need a screwdriver, hex keys, etc. to tighten tripod heads and connecting plates to the cameras. I remember when we travelled to Norway, you had an issue actually, didn't you, Alan, at uh, airport security with a set of hex keys? Yeah, that was in uh, Edinburgh Airport. Well, actually, to be fair, I didn't have an issue. It was the airport security chap that did. Um, It was fair enough, though. Um, He was quite pleasant and he was good about it. But in the end, he was quite satisfied that it was a genuine need given all the other gear that we were carrying. But moving forward, yeah, you know, I could have had them confiscated. Um, So next time, they're certainly going in the whole luggage. Um, Somewhere like Norway probably wouldn't have been a problem if they'd been confiscated. I could have very easily picked some up in the towns and things that we were uh, working in. But areas like Kenya's Masai Mara, there's literally no chance of getting a hold of even simple things. It's just logistically not possible. If you forget a lens adapter or a battery charger, anything like that, then that's it. It's tough. You know, unless a fellow traveller has a compatible device, that's it. It's, It's game over. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I also like to pack a change of t-shirt, socks, underwear in my camera bag, especially on long flights. It goes back to that thing of, you know, what happens if your hold bag goes missing for the whole trip? And as I explained before, it does happen. It's a lot to think about. Oh, and a shamag. <laughs> shamag is shamog. A shamog, is it? A shamog. <laughs> okay. Shamog. It's not a shamog. It's just a shamog. Shamog. How do you f- say it? Shamog. 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 Schmog. What is it? Schmog. Schmog. Yes. Schmog. Schmog. The Schmog. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, should I do this bit? Do, do you know what? Alan's going to talk about the Schmog because I, I can't say Right. So, Schmog. A Schmog is one of those Arabic style uh, square scarves. Um, I do know how to spell it and I do know how to pronounce it, unlike Khalil. <laughs> Uh, despite the fact that he's half Lebanese, he can't pronounce schmog. Um, but they're actually great for cold mornings, and they're also a very, very good dust cover for lenses. And again, you stick it in your camera bag, it's a little bit of extra padding too. Schmog. 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 What's it? Spelled shima. Shimach. Shimach. Schmog. Yeah, anyway. I think it's schmog anyway, I may be wrong. <laughs> Time for a beer. Definitely. <laughs> Unpacking, uh, when we're carrying a lot of small sensitive items and effective packing is a must. I like organisation in my camera bag. Um, I'm a bit old fashioned, a place for everything and everything in its place. Unlike me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, it's, it's, it's a complete opposite. You know, when I look at my office, um, it's an absolute <laughs> tip. Um, but, but, you know, 
I've experienced having to quickly unpack bags and repack them at airport security whilst rushing to catch a connecting flight. And it's taught me the benefits of organisation. You know, I'm an advocate of using dedicated pouches for cables, batteries and memory cards, cleaning gear, etc. Think Tank are a company that do a range of these and you know, we'll also put a link to this kind of thing up on the website. The last thing I'd like to add to this is making sure you test everything before you go. Test from the individual memory card to each USB cable to every single plug. Make sure your hard drives are working, that they've got space on them and they are formatted correctly. You know, we speak from experience. I had an issue in South Africa just last year where somebody turned up with a laptop and just didn't have space to back up their uh, photographs on the laptop, didn't want to delete everything. They had some hard drives, they weren't formatted correctly. One was faulty, I couldn't format it. And it was just, I spent hours and hours. I didn't mind doing it because it was, it was for a guest, it was for a client, I was quite happy to do it. But, you know, just make sure you can work efficiently and everything works and everything's tested. So when you're out in the field, it comes together and it works effectively and it works well and it makes your life a whole lot easier. Yeah, definitely. A quick note on hard drives, actually. Uh, if you can stretch to buying an SSD uh, rather than a classic hard drive, they're much smaller, lighter, faster, and they have no moving parts to get damaged. They do cost more, but they're, they're a lot better in all respects. Uh, let us know your thoughts on this huge subject. Have you had any camera equipment disasters when travelling? Some airport nightmares? Or is there anything else you'd like to share on this crucial part of planning a photography trip? You can contact us via the African Photography Safari's website. And if you'd like to come to Africa with us, you know where we are. So we do encourage listeners to get in touch with some questions to the podcast and Natalie has done just that. She's been in touch and she's asked us quite a few questions and we're going to sort of break it down over the next couple of episodes. So Khalil, take it away. Yeah, so uh, here's a question from Natalie. I think camera equipment is certainly something of a bit of a head scratcher. It seems to me that this is rather a contentious issue among various professionals and amateur photographers. She goes on to explain that she's seen some pros recommend using short lenses for wildlife, sometimes using a remote to trigger the camera to get up close and personal. And how about spending lots of money on big lenses? Right, okay, let's start with expensive equipment versus cheap. This might not be a popular opinion, but in general, Unfortunately, more expensive equipment usually does mean better results, but it's not necessarily for the reason you think. Obviously, higher quality glass in a lens will give you better looking images than a cheaper one, which might be less contrasty, less sharp, have a poor background blur. A camera body with more high quality sensor will give you a more detailed image with better dynamic range than a cheap point and shoot or an iPhone, for example. But often the money you're paying for in an expensive camera body is for features that make it easier to capture an image than it would have been for a lesser model. A perfect example of this is autofocus. A cheap camera body will have average autofocus, whereas a top-of-the-range model will let you quickly follow subjects in difficult lighting situations and lock on giving you sharp images. This is a classic situation for debunking the megapixel debate. It's pointless having 100 megapixels if the camera can't focus on anything quickly, in a wildlife photography terms anyway. Fashion photography in a studio, well that's different, but you know, a lion won't pose for you in a studio with perfect lighting. To underline the point, when I became professional, I started with a Nikon D3 body. This only had 12 megapixels, only 12 megapixels. By today's standards, that's tiny, but those megapixels were very good quality megapixels. And compared to most other cameras at the time, the autofocus was loads better. 
Going back to lenses, so with digital SLRs, a fast lens will definitely help your autofocus. So by a fast lens, I mean one that has a maximum aperture, for example, like a, an f2.8, and the autofocus on that will perform much better in low light than an f6.3 lens. It's just physics. A larger front element will let in more light, and the lens and the camera autofocus will perform much better under difficult conditions. You know, wildlife photography is nearly always in difficult conditions. It's just kind of the way it is. The animal or bird's always just too far away or the light is just too dull. So we need all the help we can get. There are other things that make getting shots on the fly easier, like dedicated dials and buttons for shutter, aperture, ISO, exposure compensation, white balance, autofocus settings. Having all these and more at your fingertips means you don't have to dig around in the menus or multifunction controls to change them in quickly. By the time you've done all that, you've missed the shot. Yeah, I think I think a good a good way to look at that as well is if you can control everything that you need to control on that camera for the shot that you're taking without removing your eye from the viewfinder, mm. that is a massive bonus. If you've got to start delving around in menus and things, then you know it's it's you're gonna miss the shot. I think that's very true, especially since you get muscle memory that builds up. So you get used to where all the buttons are without having to take your face away from the camera. And if you can automatically compensate for anything that's going on in front of the lens, then that's exactly what you want. To take it to the extreme, my cinema camera, uh, not only are there buttons and dials in multiple places for every conceivable video setting, there are 10, count them, 10 assignable buttons. Sadly, for all things in wildlife photography, good equipment costs good money. There's always the second-hand market, of course, or you can hire a lens and camera for a trip, as I mentioned earlier. One really important thing to remember when you're looking for a new camera or lens is to read or watch multiple reviews from different sources, particularly from somebody who's used that equipment, to do the same kind of photography as you want to do with it. That'll give you a good idea of whether it's up to scratch and even some of the cheaper options that can be easily good enough for what you need. For example, a flagship camera might have Wi-Fi connectivity for sports photographers getting their images loaded immediately to their editors. Now, that's not going to be much use to you in the Savannah, but, you know, class-leading autofocus would be. Absolutely. You know, and I think there's another subject that we could probably uh, talk about in, a, in another podcast is uh, some of the technology, especially in the new mirrorless cameras, mm. um, and how that actually benefits photographers uh, mm, things like pre-shot mm. which is an amazing technology which is in the Olympus and the Fujifilm cameras Olympus initiated it first then Fujifilm also have it I'm not mm. sure whether Canon, Nikon and Sony have, have followed on but yeah that's maybe a, a, another thing we can talk about in, a, in a, another podcast yeah, definitely. That's something I've used for quite a long time with the cinema camera, where it actually is always rolling, basically. So as soon as you press record, it's already got the previous few seconds in, and they've adapted that to uh, stills cameras as well. Anyway, we're kind of talking about it now rather than the future, but anyway, we'll, we'll cover that <laughs> another time. Yeah. Okay, um, and now at Natalie's point about using short lenses, uh, sometimes with a remote, sometimes by just being close to the animal behind the camera. So if you've played around taking shots of the same thing with a long lens and then using a wide lens, you know that not only the amount of stuff in the photo changes, but the geometry changes too. So imagine taking a portrait of somebody with a 400mm lens, you'd have to stand well back, then come right up to them with a super wide angle lens like a 14mm and you'd almost be touching their face and their features would distort loads. Wide angle lenses definitely have their place in wildlife photography. Many years ago, Alan and I were photographing red squirrels locally, and we decided to put a wide-angle lens in front of a hazelnut to see if we could get any different types of images. 
you know, normally you have a long image with a long lens and wide angle images of wildlife are still fairly rare, uh, although you do see more of them these days. So red squirrels are pretty cheeky, but they're not likely to come right up to you unlike greys. So sitting next to the hazelnut with your camera, you know, ourselves just wasn't an option. Animals aren't usually bothered about cameras. It's those murderous humans they have a problem with. So we set up the camera next to the tree and used remote shutter releases to fire the camera. This still gave a very wide perspective when the squirrel came for the nut, even though we weren't right behind the camera. I've put an image of one of the photos as well as a behind the scenes shot on the podcast section of the website. Oh, and there was an, inter- <laughs> there was an interesting incident yeah. in Kenya that Alan will definitely remember. <laughs> we always do a controlled white rhino walk in a sanctuary in Kenya, so we can get up close and personal with these incredibly endangered animals. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's be brilliant. so close to white rhinos. I think it's something like the second largest stroke heaviest land mammal on earth, a white yeah. rhino. They're massive, and just to be able to walk a few yards from them you know yeah oh, man it's amazing yeah. it's such a privilege uh there was this one time where we, i thought i'd try a 20 mil lens to get some unusual wide angle shots of the animals the problem with looking through a viewfinder with a 20 mil lens is that you have no idea of perspective or how close things are alan had to tap me on the shoulder when he realized just how close i was to the female rhino's face and the male was looking over at me with a rather more interest than i'd have liked after some swearing i got out of there sharpish <laughs> oh, yeah i remember that well as you probably realized by now we're trying to keep a regular feature which is book reviews so alan what have you got for us this week well i've got another fantastic book and this book is called pathfinder illustrated for nature enthusiasts and it's a book by janesta pulella now i don't know if it's janesta or janesta so i'm very sorry if i get it wrong Yonesta is a field guide in Limpopo province in South Africa, and she's used her artistic talents as well as a field craft knowledge to produce this book. It's a book that I saw on social media a few years ago, and I asked if Yonesta if she could ship a couple of copies to the African Impact Lodge in Greater Kruger, where I was going to be working, uh, which she very kindly did. I had one copy for myself, and I gave another copy to African Impact to be kept in their library for use by the students. Yonesta also very kindly wrote a note on the inside cover of the copy that I received too. Now, Pathfinder isn't a guide to be used as a means of identifying a species. Instead, it gives incredibly detailed information in a very straightforward format. It looks at the geography of South Africa, the weather, the astronomy, the geology, the ecology, explaining the whole biosphere. So let's just flick through the book and I'll sort of try and explain some of the content. I've got the book in front of me now. So, you know, we look look at it, we've got the geography of the mountains of South Africa. We've got information about the currents of the tidal flows. We look at the life cycles of thunderstorms, uh, something that happens quite a lot in sub-Saharan Africa. Ocean currents, we've got constellations, a big section on the fantastic astronomy of the area, the night sky that we see. We've got big sections of talking about communication of animals, you know, visual, olfactory, tactile, vocal. 
it's, it's an amazing book. It's just so beautifully presented. We've got information and these fantastic drawings about how snakes envenomate their prey, how antivenom is produced, how it affects animals. Different venoms work in different ways and how it's actually produced, for example. It's an absolutely amazing book. We've got information about the, the vision of birds, monocular vision, binocular vision, and what that actually means in practice, all beautifully illustrated. And I'm just flicking through the book now as I talk about this. We've got these lovely diagrams as well. Now, what gets me is that these diagrams have actually been drawn by Yonesta as well. She's an extremely talented artist as well as a very good field guide. I mean, just look at this here, yeah, all this about the flight muscles of birds, the feathers, the way the bone structure works and the wings, why the tail's important for different species as well. You know, it's, it's, it's a really nice book. It's pretty amazing, um, that. I, it is. You, you showed me this a bit earlier and uh, the, the, the level of detail is just incredible. It absolutely is. And you just open a page here and I've opened it up at lions and leopards and there's just the sort of key information about species, the height, the lifespan, gestation, weaned, the diet. It's absolutely just punchy sort of facts rather than having to sort of read reams and reams of information. It's also got things like mammal tracks and how you can identify how a, an elephant is is moving. Is it walking slowly? Is it is it walking fast? It's It's brilliant. All beautifully illustrated by Yonesta too in a very effective diagrammatic form. Yonesta and I are connected via social media, so I also see some of her other artwork, and it has to be said she's remarkably talented as well as being very knowledgeable, you know, from these very effective learning materials to a sort of very high level of fine art too. Absolutely incredible. It's one of my favourite books, but unfortunately it's not readily available here in the UK or many places outside of South Africa. I'm not sure about getting it shipped internationally, but what I'll do is I'll put a link up on the website. Anyway, we know we do have listeners in South Africa and we do have listeners who will visit South Africa and that perhaps could do exactly what I did and arrange to have it delivered to a place where they will be. So to round off this episode, we'd just like to say thank you to all of you listening to us. It's, you know, it's gratifying to know we're not just gassing to ourselves here. I'm going to read one of the reviews of the podcast, which warms the cockles of the heart and drives us on to doing more episodes. This one's from Flying Nat 81 This made me salivate. What an inspiration. I've been to the conservation area of the Maasai Mara, and since then I've got into photography in a big way. I can't wait to go back. Well, we'll see you there, Flying Nat 81 and that is episode three done. It's a wrap. It's a wrap, yeah. Hopefully next time we'll be back with episode four. We've got a few plans to talk about various things, some of which we've mentioned in this podcast. Hopefully it'll probably be about three, maybe four weeks. And I think now it's about time for the pub, so goodbye. Definitely. Bottoms up. Bottoms up.